Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in History, a channel of New Books Network. I'm Julia Gossard. Today I'm talking to Professor Judith Coffin at the University of Texas at Austin about her new book, Sex, Love, and Letters, writing Simone de Beauvoir. When Judy Coffin discovered a virtually unexplored treasure trove of letters to Simone de Beauvoir from her international readers, it inspired Coffin to explore the intimate bond between the famed author and her reading public. This correspondence at the heart of sex, love, and letters immerses us in the tumultuous decades of the late 1940s to the 1970s, from the painful aftermath of World War II to the horror and shame of French colonial brutality in Algeria, and through the dilemmas and exhilarations of the early gay liberation and feminist movements. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Judy. I really appreciate you taking some time to talk about sex, love, and letters, writing Simone de Beauvoir. I'm very glad that you're doing this, Julia. It's a pleasure to talk about it with you. I've known you for a long time, and we've had a lot of good gender conversations. So I'm looking forward to another. Yes. I, you know, I, I started reading your book and I absolutely love these opening lines. It really took me back to Paris to doing research and being at both the Bibliothèque Nationale and the Archives Nationale and both the passion and excitement that you have, as well as somewhat of the intimidation factor that comes <laughs> along with, with being at these institutions. And I just love that in especially a, a, a trying time where we're not getting to travel as much, you really bring bring us back to the archives and to thinking about this methodology. I'm very glad that worked. I still remember writing that. (laughs) You mentioned in the introduction a little bit about this, but where did the inspiration for this work come from? Well, it's one of those cases where you really stumble on something. Because as I say in the introduction, I was writing something else. I was writing a review essay, and I heard of these letters. And uh, and then I saw them. I saw them with great difficulty the first time. They're cataloged now, and a couple of other um, wonderful young historians are working on them. But at that time, they weren't uh, they weren't cataloged. And I still remember the day that uh, that I first read them. And I was glued to my chair for I would say six or seven hours. That's very unusual for me. I love to eat and go out and wander around Paris, but I just was uh, was glued to glued to my chair. They're so they're so direct and they're so dramatic and they're so thoughtful. And the letter writers are so um, hungry for conversation yeah. and thoughtful about their lives and they have such different voices and different handwritings and come from different uh, come from different situations. So I was just I was completely seduced by them. Uh, I le- later learned that seductiveness is part of what letters are about. I think I was a little naive about letters and you know letters try to um, recreate a conversation. Letters try to create a sense of intimacy and immediacy and directness. So I actually then got interested in the letterness of the letters, in right. what it meant to write a letter and what it meant to uh, what it meant to communicate. Um, so I first thought I would write about the social and cultural history of post-war France through the letters. And then I realized that the letters themselves had to be 
the center of the book and the relationship that produced them, the reading that produced them, the historical moment that produced them. So as often as often happens, then you know this, you know, the archive becomes not just your source, mm-hmm. but your subject. Yeah. And I, I, I think that's very, I think it's very obvious in, in your work that these letters are, are forming their own archive in many ways. And I think you present to readers this really great examination of what is letter writing, right? And, and what is the relationship between the letter writer and the receiver and even you as the reader as sort of this, you know, peer into people's identities, Yes, the kind of the sense that you're reading over somebody's shoulder right, mm-hmm. uh, creates um, all kinds of challenges that I hadn't uh, that I hadn't thought about. And you make it quite clear that these letters themselves are are their own type of archive, and that letters and writings to Beauvoir were not some random act of her just collecting and keeping them. These are a very conscious decision on Beauvoir's part to keep these and to create almost an archive of those letters. And you say they demonstrate her beliefs about, quote, writing, life, and philosophy. So they offer not only the source base of this book, but also a deeper understanding of the post-war world in terms of identity and gender and sexuality. What do you think that by studying those letters, we can tell more about this period? I mean, obviously, you were going to work on just a topic of sort of post-war social and cultural history through those letters and then expanded it to Beauvoir. So what does this give us? Oh, gosh, it gives us uh, it gives us a lot. Let me start with the with the question about what it shows us about Beauvoir. I, I figured this out relatively uh, relatively late in the project. She saved these letters because she was very interested. She was passionately interested in her readers. Partly she was interested in showing that her ideas landed <laughs> and that her arguments were right. She said, um, readers gave my work its truth. But she also meant by that that her ideas that that philosophy for her is about grappling with consciousness, with lived experience, with everyday life, with the world as it unfolds. And so, these letters in which uh, in which readers told her about reading, about their lives, about their marriages, about their politics, um, these weren't just stories. They are they are sort of the stuff of of philosophy. Mm. These are uh, these are thinkers. These are ideas that encounter um, in their encounter with the everyday. Um, so I think we I think we learned that about Beauvoir. We also learned that, you know, the second sex isn't the only or even necessarily the most influential thing that she writes. What these readers are writing about are her memoirs. Right. And it's her memoirs and her life story, or or what she chooses to tell us about her life story, that really lands with a very large uh, public. And again, makes her um, more abstract ideas concrete. I mean, gender is so many things, right? Gender is a division of labor, a division of responsibilities, including emotional responsibilities in the, uh, in the family. Gender is, a, uh, gender is a cultural formation. So we learn gender is, a, gender is a way of organizing sexual desire. And we learn 
all about the different ways in which those issues uh, those issues came up. Um, the stuff on sexuality is is interesting and would probably take uh, probably take more time to to really get through. Um, we see people grappling with the categories of sexual knowledge that were available at the time, and they are so inadequate to understanding what they are feeling, their desires. Um, their relationships, that part of uh, that part of the uh, sexuality was uh, was very uh, very interesting to me, and you know identity. We learn all about the many many different ways of living one's life, live, living the female condition, if you uh, if you will, and you know the post war post war France and post war Europe in general and the united states too and and elsewhere in the world is a time of enormous economic um expansion it's a you know the 30 glorious years it's called in uh in france consumerism economic expansion expanding employment expanding prosperity and in some ways what these letters show is the dark side of of that just how much that's about labor more children more care of the of the household so it shows the sort of private side of the history of those post-war uh post-war years definitely i i think one of the more interesting things about these letters is you do sense from from reading uh, your words about these letters that there's a quite amount of tension in people's understandings of where their sexuality fits, where their behavior fits, where their identity fits. And they're using Beauvoir almost as a sounding board in many ways to figuring this out. They've read her memoirs. They've read her letters. And by the fact that Beauvoir is just writing about herself, they take it as an opportunity to tell them to tell Beauvoir about themselves as well. That's exactly right. And they try to do it sometimes using her categories of, uh, of thought. Um, that's particularly true in the, in the case of, uh, in the case of sexuality. And they show pretty clearly when those categories work and when they, uh, and when they don't. So she at once sort of nudges them to, uh, explain themselves um, she gives them a handful of ideas that they can use. She gives them a model. She gives them, I guess at some point I call it a scaffolding. You know, her mm-hmm. life story gives them a scaffolding to talk about uh, theirs, to say, I'm like you or uh, I'm exactly not like you. Uh, and the fact that she says so much about herself, although we know she didn't tell us everything, far from right. it. Uh, the fact that she says so much is a kind of invitation to them to do the same. And I, I think what's also really interesting about these letters, too, is that there's a sense that they aren't all fan letters, right? <laughs> they aren't all, you know, you're the you're the greatest existentialist philosopher of all time. You know, I love your work. Uh, yeah, they get uh, downright argumentative. Yes, they do. And and in the conclusion and in chapter eight, you point out when she posits in All Said and Done that orgasm was a psychosomatic phenomenon, for example, she had people writing to her with extensive skepticism and shock and uh, almost bewilderment and confusion and pushing back against her too. So you see the ways in which the public is actually becoming involved in some of these 
very interesting discussions about sexuality and the body and identity during this period. Yeah, they know so much more in the late 60s and and early 70s than they did in the 50s. It's hard to imagine those kinds of letters coming in in the uh, in the in the 1950s. But by the late 60s, people who have, uh, you know, who have read the myth of the vaginal orgasm and uh, and other, you know, what we now know are are kind of uh, classics about uh, about um, women's sexual pleasure are writing back and saying, you don't know what what you don't know what you're talking about. Um, and and that was funny to see how how um, you know they're not always deferential. They're very uh, they're very respectful. They're um, they 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 play, you know Beauvoir is plainly a major figure in their life, but they don't feel that they have to defer to her, and they don't sort of cling on her every word. They're hungry for a conversation, but they really do feel themselves to be her interlocutors at some, mm. uh, some level. And, and this is a question I, I, didn't, I didn't provide to you on the list that I gave to you before, but as we're talking, it makes me wonder, do you think part of that desire to want to have this conversation with Beauvoir and viewing her as, as sort of this interlocutor is because of her gender? She's perhaps more approachable as a woman versus, you know, writing to Sartre or somebody else, right, about some of these same issues. Yes, absolutely. It's hard to imagine them writing um, a male author in quite the same way. And there's a sort of ready-made template for writing to a uh, writing to a, a, another uh, another woman which is the you know letters from the heart or the uh, mm-hmm. or the advice column and you know and Beauvoir gets gets kind of irritated that that people uh, think of her as writing an advice column and the readers quite insist um, I'm not writing to you in this genre. I'm not writing for you to pat me on the head and say, there, there, you know, little girl, everything will be fine. I'm thinking about my life and I want to, and I want to have a conversation with a woman, but a woman who is also a serious thinker. And so sure, the fact that she's, the fact that she's a woman, the fact that she's a celebrity, the fact that she writes her memoirs, I think that's what makes the uh, most difference. But that's, you know, that's one of the the reasons why these letters get drawn into this mode of advice column, get drawn into what I call the kind of magnetic force of women's culture, um, which is which is really interesting to see how that works out. As you're discussing these letter writers and the changes between, say, the 1950s and the 1960s and 70s, is there education? right, is the fact that they are becoming much more comfortable talking about sexuality, much more well-versed in philosophy and the construction of knowledge right alongside Beauvoir's writings as well. So you can see the way that that exploded in post-war France, the United States, and, and Europe at large, the way people are really buying almost as a consumer entity too. Well, yes. I mean, I, I will tell you, my first encounter with the second sex was probably when I was, you know, 12 years old and I was homesick for the day and I was looking around on my mother's bookshelf and I found the second sex and I said, oh, this is going to teach me something about sex. Well, um, there was a lot more <laughs> than I bargained for, but I don't think that that was uncommon. 
Uh, I mean, the the American reviews um, are 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 wonderful. They say, "Oh, there is perhaps a little too much about sexuality in here," or "Oh, she really goes all out." Um, you know what what um, Kate Mann, the the author of Down Girl, calls the gory details of uh, of sexuality are really resonant for uh, for a lot of people. And by the time we get into the into the late sixties, you can really see people uh, people making sense of that. I think it's kind of bewildering to many in the in the fifties. Although one of the things I want to add this about about sexual knowledge is how unbelievably patchy it is, how uneven it is, how what you know, since there's no, you know, national um, curriculum, there's no um, there's very little discussion, what you know really depends on whether or not you heard something from your parents, your friends, an aunt, uh, whether you live in a in a city or in the in the countryside, I mean the gap between what some people know and what some people are completely ignorant about is uh, is really interesting. Yeah, absolutely, and I, I think you can tell that a little bit when you start discussing. I think it's in chapter two. You you start talking a little bit about the rise of um, Kinsey right alongside Beauvoir and how this helps to carry the second sex um, into commercial women's press, but within these women's presses, you have Beauvoir, you know, writing in Perry Match or in L, but there's a lot of patchiness between what is serialized and publicized and what is the true essence of Beauvoir too. Yeah, although I don't think that there's necessarily a true essence of, well, of course there is. And, um, but, but that's not my project. My project, there are so many people who've written so many brilliant books about Beauvoir. Um, you know, I don't, I don't want to go into, into that territory. I'm interested in the, in the Beauvoir that lands in how it gets the conversations that gets pulled into public or private, um, the relationships that it uh, builds, the issues that it helps people uh, people puzzle over. So for me, the fact that it's pulled into Perry Match is great, right? I saw that I saw that cover of Perry Match, and I said, "Oh, this is completely fantastic!" With the guy wearing his uh, the movie star wearing his fishnet t shirt, and then an advertisement for the second sex across. I actually went and looked up the the cover when I was reading it in your book because I thought, oh, I've got to see what this looks like. <laughs> I know. I wonder. I and you know, it's very hard to get um, to get um, permission to use anything from Perry Match. Anything involving Beauvoir, um, image wise, is extremely expensive. I wanted to publish that uh, that image, but you know, it would have cost hundreds and hundreds of uh, hundreds and hundreds of dollars. So uh, so I didn't. But you found it on the web, right? Found it on the web. Yeah, it's it's wonderful. Yeah. It really adds quite a bit to this juxtaposition of of what's going on there. I know. Well, all of these juxtapositions are 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 wonderful. There's the juxtaposition of I mean Beauvoir and Kinsey. Who ever thought? I mean, I certainly had never thought of uh, the Kinsey report alongside the Second Sex. And now I'm doing a project on the other another book that I never thought of alongside the second sex, but that's Story of O, which is um, you know, the kind of famous erotic novel of the of the nineteen fifties, which comes out of exactly the same moment as uh as the second sex. So I'm always intrigued by this, uh, these incongruous pairings and what they show about the, the history of a of a given moment. 
that that was probably one of my my favorite chapters and thinking about you know this foundational work on on sexuality and Beauvoir in conjunction with it and the way that we can read those two kind of in conversation with one another. Well, I was just going to say what it shows about how you know sex. This is why I coined this term that I like mid century sex, and it means everything. It mean there there's nothing that is not somehow brought back to, incorporated into, explained by um, sex. And that's what people can think that Beauvoir and Kinsey are writing about the same thing, even though we now go, well, you know, these two books have nothing to do with each other. Um, but it's very interesting about the capaciousness of, of sex as a, as a topic in the 1950s. Yeah. Yeah, I I, I want to go back to something that you said about how you're not wading into to you know particular territories about Beauvoir, and I I think that the thing that surprised me the most just from the title is that this is not a biography of Beauvoir, although she is certainly the anchor of this. This is really about her ideas and how those letter writers demonstrate these ideas in this culture and society that's ever changing. Yeah, it's really not a biography of of Beauvoir, and I think I think you put it very nicely when you say that that she's the uh, she's the anchor, she's the occasion, she's the she's the person who put this uh, put this archive uh, together by by uh, saving the uh, letters. But I really, you know, the book book really aims in some way to decenter her. I mean, I was mm-hmm. trained as a social and cultural historian. Um, study the history of, of ordinary, uh, ordinary people. And I wanted them to be the center of attention and their lives and their thoughts about their lives to be the center of, uh, to center of attention. Um, I don't, I mean, I don't think that one should cabin off intellectual history from social and cultural history and, and, um, it is an intellectual history in some ways, but it's not a biography of Beauvoir and it's not a study of, uh, of her work. It's a study of her relationships or, or readers' relationships with her and then what that tells us about the world in which, um, in which that relationship takes shape. I think that that's really apparent in, in chapters three and four. Maybe it's readers and writers. Uh, where, mm. you know, you really, you really point out, you know, this is, this is about these people who have read Beauvoir. There's almost Beauvoir the person, Beauvoir the celebrity, and then Beauvoir this sort of entity of ideas <laughs> in many ways. Right, exactly. And, and it's much more about that Beauvoir, the entity of ideas, because you also have people back to, to thinking about this sort of patchiness of, of sexual knowledge. You have them writing to her for medical knowledge as well. And it, it seems like Beauvoir's sometimes willing to give that advice and at other times is like, why, why is somebody writing to me about this? <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and I, I do, um, I don't wish I had answers to those uh, questions. I mean, I think it's more fun to, to just uh, think about them and, and imagine, uh, yeah. imagine her reading these letters. I have, I have one letter um that that gives you a wonderful sense of how it sat on her desk because somebody's written a shopping list for a get together of friends on the on the back of it. It says, you know, so and so should bring little ghosts and um, 
And so you, so you can see that these letters just piled up on her, uh, on her desk. But um, yeah, people see that she's writing about sex and people have really pressing questions. Um, you know, there's no con- contraception is illegal. Abortion is illegal. So, so these are, uh, these are big questions. How you, uh, the biggest question is how you avoid getting pregnant, which is which is why I have this one wonderful letter from a man saying, you know, I have, I can't remember how many children, I have four children and I really need to know how not to have any more yeah. because my wife doesn't want to do this anymore. It's, it's very interesting the ways that, that people look to these sort of touchstones or cornerstones of what they think of as sexual knowledge as this advice giving during this era. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's what they need. They need advice. Yeah. Right. They're not just interested in sexuality as a subject. They need to manage their everyday lives um, and their everyday lives are sometimes a big mess. I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm really impressed by the resilience of these characters uh, and what they managed to uh, what they managed to get through. I, I want to talk about a point you make in your first chapter where you're deconstructing sort of our collective memory of the second sex. I think academics mm-hmm. in particular will find this chapter very helpful in, in thinking about sort of the legacy of Beauvoir. And, and you take us back to 1949. And reading this chapter in 2020 when we are, you know, celebrating the um, – century of female suffrage for white women. Um, I'm I'm struck by, (laughs) I'm very struck by what you say about women's suffrage in 1944, France. Um, Uh You know, this is Beauvoir is actually seeming to be somewhat irritated by the fanfare around female suffrage in 1944, going so far as to say, are there women really? And this seems to be kind of a, a point that reading that in 2020, I'm so struck by this. You know, it's so it's so interesting because the oldest cliche about the second sex is that it's ahead of its time. Right. And so one of my most simple arguments is it's not. It's completely of its time. And if one plunks it back into 1949, it seems very different. It's a self-consciously post-feminist mm-hmm. book. Mm-hmm. Beauvoir is really, you're absolutely right. She's, com- she's completely impatient. You know, suffrage has happened and so what? Yeah. She's sort of, she's, she's so impatient. She said, we have to start all over again. We have to rethink the question of women's inequality or the female uh, condition, or as she would put it, the relationship of the female condition to the, uh, to the human condition. Suffrage is a very narrow issue. I mean, you said that yourself when you, you, you say it's white women's mm-hmm. feminism, uh, white women's suffrage. Um, and that's very much the reputation that feminism has in the late 1940s and early 1950s. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't lots of really interesting Sure. People writing what we would now see as feminist things, but they are laboring under the image of feminism as a narrow, bourgeois, white European movement. And Beauvoir, like many other radicals, is interested in this much broader uh, world of, um, you know, the emergence of uh, anti-colonial movements, what will become the emergence of the of the civil rights movement, and and 
feminism makes her feel claustrophobic. Yeah. And she's gotten a kind of bad rap for this. And one of the things I wanted to do was, you know, sort out her position and her feelings because they were so plainly echoed by her readers. Mm -hmm. So how what feminism means changes from the late 40s to the late 60s is one of the things that I'm interested in here. You know, how is it that radical feminism explodes in the aftermath of, uh, of 19, uh, 1968? Right. Um, she's very ambivalent about feminism, but that's interesting yeah. to me. For me, that's not a reason to pillory her, but it's an, a reason to explore it. Right. And in this way in which, you know, we have kind of held this up as, as a work of feminist thought, at least colloquially, right? And, and the ways in which she doesn't mm-hmm. quite think about it that way. And uh, chapter six does this as well where we see how right. the conversations surrounding decolonization, the Algerian War, um, 1968, really revitalizes uh, the second sex in many ways, that people are going back to this, looking at it and thinking about the decolonization of the soul as well. And she's really pushing this ideology. And you know, she's questioning, has the role of women in the 1960s really changed? Well, you know, it's interesting because um – you're you're absolutely right, and and I think I call it you know the second sex gets a second life in the uh, in the 1960s. That's not necessarily because her arguments have changed. Right. Um, it's because the you know the sort of world of ideas and analogies has changed. I mean, obviously the social world is very different, and the cultural world is very different. But in the aftermath of the Algerian uh, the Algerian war suddenly and the emergence of civil rights in the United States. I think that is also very important. These analogies between movements to uh, liberate colonial peoples, um, black power and women's liberation, those analogies make sense Mm -hmm. in a way that they hadn't, um, that people, that people in in a mainstream way, people, uh, people were, were blind to um, before then. And one of the things that's that's interesting is that the second sex's first life is as a post-war book. Mm-hmm. It's post-World War II. And its second life is post-war as well as post-Algerian uh, um, war. So, um, you know, the book stays the same, but it's read in very different ways. It's also read through her memoirs. So now right. people have some sense of what the, what to make of it. Yeah, and, and what to make about Beauvoir writing it as well and, and what that all meant. Exactly. That becomes the sort of the framework for it. I mean, it's a very big book. The Seven Sex is a very big book, and people kind of ricochet off it in very different ways. It's very hard to to grasp the full meaning of it in, uh, in 1949. And I, I think that that's what, you know, Sex, Love, and Letters does really well, is it explains that, you know, the second sex is important, but these memoirs are important to read with it as well, and that people are interpreting it for their own lives. They're taking it um, as points of either acceptance or discourse and debate as well within themselves. Right, right. Taking it into their lives. It. I mean, it also, it, it's meant to show too that, and I hope this comes through, that books are important. Yeah. You know, good 
books are a big deal. Reading is really exciting to people. Um, there's a kind of democratization of education mm-hmm. and conversation, and, and it's still a very hierarchical literary world. Um, but you can see there's a, a sort of thirst for big ideas on the part of, you know, not particularly privileged uh, people. Yeah. I I think one of the, the more interesting methodological or maybe one of the more challenging methodological aspects of your book is that while you have this treasure trove of letters and they've created their archive themselves, you don't always have Beauvoir's response. And the way in which you had to often imagine what her response would have been, um, I think you you do masterfully, but I think that would be hard for many scholars to be able to do. Well, we, there aren't any of her answers in there, I should say. Um, it's clear that she does answer because they say, thank you so much for writing to me. Oh, I was so thrilled to get your letter. And I do have, um, and since the book's been published, a couple of people have written me to say, oh, you know, I got a letter from uh, from Simone de Beauvoir. Um, That's really cool. I was actually glad um, to have it one way because as uh, a one-way correspondence, because as you say, that frees up a little more space for imagining mm-hmm. the dialogue. And that was really fun to do. And because to be honest, we have thousands and thousands and thousands of pages written by Simone de Beauvoir. So um, we're not at any loss for her ideas. And the other thing is that in those thousands of pages, she writes about her readers quite a lot. Right. I mean, that was that was why it was quite clear to me that this was a dialogue, because she'd say, oh, my readers wrote to me about their uh, marriages, or um, I have asked my readers, I've asked you, my readers, to be my collaborators. Please read all the way to the end of this book. This is going to be a difficult book. So she's very for the same reasons that she saved these letters, she's very self-conscious about her readers and being in dialogue uh, with them. So that part of it, not having her answers was was easy. Um, the hard part that was fun but was hard was bringing these readers to life and capturing what made each of them an individual mm-hmm. while at the same time saying something that was more broadly significant about the cultural moment. And that, you know, that did take a, that did take a lot of work translating them. I mean, among other things, uh, and only using snippets because, uh, they have to, uh, remain anonymous. So, um, I couldn't identify them in any way. So bringing them to life without identifying them was a little bit of a, a little bit of a challenge. Yeah, because this is, you know, such a such a recent history that some of these people are are very much still alive, you know, and and involved, you know. One of her uh one of her correspondents who I can't um name but has given who sent Beauvoir her diaries has given them to the um, Philippe Lejeune has a has an auto institute for the study of autobiography and she's given uh, those diaries to them so so we know who uh, we know who some of these uh, some of these people are but um, you know one respects their privacy. 
If you could give advice for, you know, popular readers who might be very interested in sort of the life and ideas of Simone de Beauvoir, of how they might, you know, approach this work and, and read it for themselves. Well, I think everybody should read a book however they want to read it. I don't think you have to start at the beginning and go all the way through. You can bounce around until you get something that grabs uh, that grabs your attention. Um, if you want something, the, the, the more biographical part of uh, on Beauvoir is uh, chapter three, where you know she sort of becomes a celebrity and begins to write her uh, her memoirs. If you're interested in political, the political history of the Algerian War, there are two chapters on that. One of my favorite chapters is the chapter on marriage, actually, um, because there's such a deep misunderstanding um, of what she's she's saying and she keeps trying to correct her readers and they keep not getting it but saying we love you anyway um and i just uh i really uh i really enjoyed uh really enjoyed that part she writes a short story that is based among other things on her readers letters um it's not a short story in which her readers come out very sympathetically um and the readers don't care right Right. Um, so, uh, so there are lots of yeah. The the marriage chapter I think is is quite uh, quite vivid. If one's interested in uh, in feminism, the legal battles over uh, over contraception, uh, chapter eight is uh, is interesting. And if one's interested in the sort of odd ways in which the second sex is read in the nineteen forties, then you begin at the beginning. But I think uh, I think you can plunge into it at just about any point. Well, thank you so much, Judy, for joining me to talk about sex, love, and letters. It has been a real pleasure. It was really, uh, it was really terrific. Uh, thank you for doing this. I was, I'm thrilled to talk about it. For your own copy of Sex, Love, and Letters, please visit Cornell University Press. Thank you to Cornell University Press for a review copy of this book. I'll see you next time on New Books in History. Happy reading. <laughs>